It's probably no surprise at this point that I really want you to study theology. And you might be thinking, great, good for you, but I don't have to listen to you. And you're right, you don't have to listen to me. But if I could show you that God wanted you to study theology, I hope that every follower of Jesus Christ listening to this would say, okay, God, not my will, but yours be done. And so in this episode, I want us to see how God does want you to study theology. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of life so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. As always, thank you to my supporters over on patreon.com slash onward in the faith who give money every month to keep this ministry going. You can find out more about that down in the show notes. Now, we are in a very belated part three on this series on theology, if you are seeing this when it released. Up to this point, we've had two videos discussing really a, a better understanding of theology. We've talked about why Christians have problems with it and the different reasons that they, they take issue with theology or don't want to study theology. We then took a fairly thorough look at what theology is at the end of the day. And the goal, and I hope what was accomplished with that, is showing that, yes, technically, theology is the study of God, right? That's the Merriam-Webster's definition of what theology is. But for the life of a Christian, for someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, we should not be able to merely study God like we study algebra, like we study history, where we learn the facts and we can talk about the things, but we don't do anything with it. But when it comes to theology, what we study as truth ought to then infuse with our lives. It should change everything about who we are, how we think, what we desire, and what we do. We talked about how, at the end of the day, right, the kind of definition that we tried to land on is that theology is understanding God, humanity, and the world as God has revealed it so that we can grow in truth and live for Jesus. So we have this idea of we study, but we also have a why behind what we study and then what we go and do with the things that we learn. So we want to know truth. And then once we've learned the truth, we want to go and practice the truth, right? We want to grow in spiritual maturity so that we can live for Jesus. And so if our greatest goal, right, if our sole aim is to live for Jesus, studying theology is how we do that most often. By knowing the truth, we can live for the truth. If our goal is to live for the truth, the only way to do that is to know the truth, to learn the truth, to understand how to arrive at truth in the first place. Because Christianity is not a memorization of facts. It's understanding God through the word that he's given us, through the world that he has created around us, and understanding who we are and what we are and how we fit into all of that. So that's what this episode is going to be, is we are going to be digging into how God has called us to not just study his word, but to live his word, to live for the truth. And the only way that we can live for that truth 
is to know that truth, right? It's this symbiotic relationship where if we want to live in truth, we have to study the truth. And if we study the truth, we have to live in the truth. So before we get into the nitty gritty of this episode, I just want to give us uh, kind of a broad foundation that I want us to start from. And that is to uh, help us understand everything that needs to go in to what we're going to be thinking about and hopefully what God is going to be convicting us of or encouraging us in. Now, the first thing that I want us to consider is James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. So again, core understanding that we have to have is that it's great to have faith in God, but if that faith is not leading to something, we need to question, do we truly have faith? Are we truly trusting in the reality of who Jesus is, what he saved us from, and what he saved us into, what he has saved us for? And so if our lives are not in harmony, if they are not running alongside what we say we believe, then there's a, a severe disconnect there. I've heard uh, one author say it this way, that when we take our stated beliefs, so the things that we say that we believe is true, we take our stated beliefs plus our actual practice, you get our actual beliefs. So it's like a math problem. Stated beliefs plus actual practice equals actual beliefs. And so this is one way where studying theology is going to be critical to helping us at the very basic level examine our faith, right? Our salvation in Jesus Christ. Not that we are saved by works, but that saving faith is going to over time produce works, right? As God is changing us, as he is growing us, as he is adapting us to be more like Jesus Christ and less like who we were without Jesus Christ, our lives are going to change. So James reminds us that what we study, what we are learning has to result in life change. So then we might say, okay, so does God just want me to modify my behavior, right? Is this like modern day psychology where we just adjust our behaviors to fix whatever problems that we're experiencing? And no, God isn't just after us doing the right things in order to somehow prove our faith. God knows your heart. He knows why you do what you do. He knows why I do what I do. And so on top of understanding what James has to say about how what we do shows us what we truly believe, I also want us to consider the importance of the heart that we have behind these actions that will follow our beliefs. And I want us to look at Isaiah chapter one, and this is going to be a bit lengthier, but I think a lot of people are going to find this fascinating because a lot of times we read the Old Testament and we think, oh man, God was all about works, works, works. Israel just had to do this and not do this. And they had this, this long list of just laws that they had to follow. And if they didn't break a lot of them, then they would probably be safe, right? But no, 
passages like Isaiah and even other things in the Old Testament show us that God didn't just give laws so that people would have good and right behavior. So look at what he says here in Isaiah chapter one about Israel, who was doing a lot of things that was following the law that he had given them, but their hearts behind it were wrong. So Isaiah chapter one, starting in verse seven and going all the way to verse 20, it says, your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire, your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolate as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless Yahweh of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, I want to pause here just to give a quick uh, uh, narrative understanding here. Is So, so far, Israel is has been totally trashed by its enemies. And they are saying, the, uh, Isaiah is saying here, that unless God had spared them something, they would have been completely wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. As we read about, they were completely decimated, right? Not a single survivor left, which is the state Israel would have been under God's judgment had he not had mercy on them. And then here he goes and he addresses Israel like they were the rulers of Sodom and the rulers of Gomorrah. In other words, he is showing the the horrible wickedness and comparing these people who are God's people, right? Those people that God had set aside for himself and how they are just as bad in a way like these rulers of these wicked cities that God destroyed. So then he goes on saying, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says Yahweh? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle and in the blood of bulls, lambs or goats, I take no pleasure. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Now, listen to that. Who has required you to come into God's courts? What are these multiplied sacrifices to God? What are all these animal sacrifices to him? Israel thought, hey, we've screwed up, but hey, look, we're sacrificing. We're doing the right things. You know, we're living our lives like this one way, but we're doing all the other things that you tell us to do. We're, we're really good legalists. And what does God say? He doesn't care what they're doing because he knows their heart behind it is wrong. God is the one that's called Israel to his presence. God is the one who was called for these sacrifices. He said that he would be satisfied in, in covering over their sins until the Redeemer would come and pay the full penalty for their sins. But here he's saying he doesn't want this stuff. He is not interested in it. And that shows us the reality of who God has always been throughout biblical history. And then he's going to go on here and he's going to keep hammering why their works are not the only thing that he's after. So he goes on in verse 13, bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. Now that's harsh language. Abomination language in the Old Testament is primarily saved for like worshiping false gods and demons and human sacrifice and things like that. And he is saying that following the Mosaic law and how they were bringing offerings to him was like child sacrifice to Moloch. That's bad. 
continuing new moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocation. So these are talking about the, uh, the festivals and, and things like that. I cannot endure wickedness and, and the solemn assembly. My soul hates your new moon festivals and your appointed times. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Indeed, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Even though they multiply their prayers, even though they do all the right things, even though they keep crying out to him. God's not just sitting there waiting for them to act right and tick their boxes. It's not just about Israel's behavior. Then he goes on. Wash yourselves, purify yourselves, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, execute justice for the orphan, plead for the widow. Look what God's calling them to. He's not calling them to just some some canned behaviors in our modern context on Sundays or just doing the right thing when they first wake up in the morning and praying their prayer over mealtime. He is calling for them to seek justice, to do good, reprove the ruthless, execute justice for the orphan, plead for the widow. He is saying, modify your whole lives, believe what is true about me, and then set everything you do in following everything I've called you to. Not just the things that you like, not just the things that are easy that you can do for an hour, a week or something like that, and then just call yourself done and then just go off and do whatever you want. God is saying that he wants every aspect of their lives devoted to him. Then continuing verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. So what is God calling us to? You remember, we looked at James and Jay says, hey, you need to have works. You need to do stuff. You need to do things because you're a Christian. And we asked the question, okay, so does God just want us to learn all the right behaviors? No, God does not want our obedience. He wants our obedience with right hearts behind it. That is what God desires of us. And that is the, the aim of theology. That is what I really want you to see in this episode is that God loves you. God has saved you into a beautiful life, a life that can be filled with, with hardship and suffering and pain and death and misery. But in the midst of all of that, in the midst of whatever life throws at you from a human perspective, God also calls you to a life where you can love and serve him, where you can keep pursuing a God who is inexhaustible, who will never fail you. That is the goal of theology. So we talked about how James reminds us that in a way stated beliefs plus actual practice equals our actual beliefs, but it's not just about actions because wrapped up and encircling that whole idea is the reality that our motivation matters. Why are we doing what we are doing? Why, why study theology? Is it just about getting head knowledge? No. Does that mean that theology is worthless? Should we just have really good intentions? Should we just have the right hearts and just live our lives the best that we can? No. 
theology and really all of our lives as Christians are not about just having good intentions. It's not about having the right behavior. It's not about just studying and having facts. It's all of those things working together. And as a final thought, as as just a broad introduction to this topic of what God wants and why God wants us to study theology, consider what Ezra did. So in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to practice it and to teach his statute and judgment in Israel. So what did Ezra do? He studied the law of God. What did he do with it? He practiced it first, and he knew that it was so life-giving, so transformative, so necessary for life, that Ezra also taught others to understand what God's word said. And we want that to be our motivation. And I hope as we launch into that, that you understand that is my motivation, really with this, this whole Onward in the Faith ministry. My motivation is to study so that I can live for God, and I want all of you to follow me as I follow Christ. I don't want you to be like me, but in the best way that I follow God, by the grace of God that I follow him, as I study, as I put in the time, as I wrestle with things, I am studying theology, number one, so that I can live for God, so that I can understand who he is and what his will is, so that I can live my life and have understandings and have an entire worldview shaped by his truth so that I can then do things with as much confidence as I can have saying, I am doing this according to the will of God. What I'm doing is in alignment with God, not because my emotions tell me, not because my experiences tell me or my church or my tradition or my pastor or my parents or whoever tells me, but I am confident that the things that I am doing are in alignment with God's will because of what I see about him in his word. And then as I live my life, I want to show you and encourage you and equip you so that you likewise can say, here's maybe where my emotions are drawing me. Here is what I assumed. Here's what my worldview had been up to this point. But based on what God's word is clearly showing me now, here is how I will live. So let's, let's get into the remainder of this episode with a heart similar to Ezra that we want to see why we want to study the law of God so that we can practice it and in living it out, right? And in continuing to study and then continuing to live for God more and then studying more so that we can live for him more. I hope that as I am pouring this into you, you can then pour it into others, to your family, your friends, whomever, so that we can all keep growing into spiritual maturity, pursuing our savior. So all that being said, Let's get in to a lot of verses that tell us what God desires for his people, how God has clearly laid out the how and the why of of his desire for us to study theology, understanding it's not just about fact acquisition, right? It's not just about memorization and being really smart, but having the material we need to make the decisions God desires for us, having enough 
uh, kindling built up around our hearts for the Holy Spirit to spark a fire, to bring understanding to us, right? Because the more we understand God's word, the more of God's word the Holy Spirit uses to transform our lives for Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do here is we're going to see uh, basically God's call to know him or God's call to live in a way that is completely impossible without having taken the time to get to know him. And again, we don't get to know him by our personal feelings, by hearing him talk to us and things like that. He has given us his word to know him by, and it is by knowing his word that we will best know him. And so by the end of this, I hope that we will really just see that God's word is so consistent about what the ultimate essence of theology is, which is that we are growing in truth so that we can live in truth. Just like Ezra said, just like we will see from literally, we're going to look from Genesis all the way through Revelation. We're going to take some time skips in between there, but we're going to see all throughout God's word that this idea is not some New Testament thing. It's not just a thing that Paul got really hung up on and telling us to do and things like that. We're going to see all throughout scripture. God is constantly calling his people, know me so you can live for me, live for me because of what you know about me over and over and over again. Now, just as a heads up, there are a lot of verses that we're going to go through. This is, as you can tell, a longer episode. But the goal of this is not to just pepper you with Bible verses. I don't want you to see what I say. I don't want you just to get my opinion or my persuasiveness or anything like that. I want you to see that God's word is so clear that he, your God, the God of the universe, the one that sent Jesus to die for you, he wants you to study theology. And so... Try not to get to get worn out on me here. You know, take a pause if you need to, but stick with me and see how consistent God is in telling you to study theology. So we're going to start not quite at the beginning, but mostly at the beginning. So Genesis chapter four, verses three to seven. So the context of this is that Adam and Eve booted from the garden. They had kids, Cain and Abel. You know how the story ends, but we are going to see kind of what happens that leads to Cain killing his brother Abel. So it says in Genesis chapter four, verses three to seven. So it happened in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is lying at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So within the story of Cain and Abel, we're not going to get into why one sacrifice was better than the other. But based on what God is saying to Cain, Cain's heart was not in the right place. He knew or understood or assumed, or maybe his tradition told him that some kind of thing needed to, needed to be brought to God. But God's not just getting at Cain's action, right? Of just, you know, the, the, the green beans that he threw on the altar or whatever. God is saying, you're angry right now. You are in sin right now. Because you are not desiring to do right. 
God is getting at the reality that Cain seemed to know what was right, but he didn't want to do the right thing. He did not want to do the thing that honored God. So for as limited as their understanding probably was of God at this point, you know, we don't know how actively engaged God was with people. We don't know if he had given them a whole list of, you know, start bringing these kind of uh, pre, pre-Israel sacrifices to me. We don't really know precisely what's going on here. But what we do know is that Cain knew what was right and did not do what was right. And therefore he fell into sin. And because he did not repent, because he did not turn away from that sin, that multiplied in his heart and it led to him murdering his brother. All right, the very first murder in all of history came because Cain ultimately had bad theology. He may have known the truth, but he did not want to live out the truth. He did not want to surrender to God and say, here is what truth is, and I desire to live it out for God. So theology is kind of important. Understanding God's will and then doing God's will because we love God are very critical to our lives and to the lives of our brothers if they're giving better sacrifices than we are. Now, let's jump ahead to the Psalms, right? David. We're going to see what David has to tell us about studying God's word. And as we're going through this Old Testament stuff, just a, a framework to think about, right? Because a lot of times we can think about what it says about God's word in our context about, oh yeah, the nice sayings of Jesus and things like that. David basically just had the first five books. Genesis, good history. Exodus, pretty cool. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these are the books that David gets hyped about. This is what, when people talk about the, the, the word of God, a lot of it is those first five books of the law of, of our Bibles that we see today. That is what got David excited. And really think about it. Are you excited to read some of those books? Do they get you excited? Do you read them and say, yeah, I want to live for God so much now. Oh, that is life-giving. That is refreshing. But here's what David has to say about the law of God, about God's word that he had access to at that time. It says in Psalm chapter one, verses one to two, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And so here he's going to contrast that by saying, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Look how excited he is. David starts off this psalm, and in a way, the entire book of Psalms, with a focus on what? God's word. He's saying, how blessed is the person who does not walk in sin, who does not pursue their own desires, but instead, he loves what would have been the equivalent then of the Bible. He meditates on it. He dwells on it. He thinks about what it says, what it means, and how that transforms his life. And we know that because he doesn't just meditate on it and then go and do whatever old thing. He meditates on it and therefore does not walk in the counsel of wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners, does not sit in the seat of scoffers. He is able to live a life pleasing to God because he meditates. He studies theology so that he can live out what he learns as true. Now, jumping ahead in the Psalms, we're going to look at Psalm 119, verses 9 to 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? That's a good question. Let's find out. 
by keeping it according to your word. Not just trying his best, not just doing what feels right, not just doing what everyone else is doing, not saying, well, you know, this, this Israelite over here does this and people really like him. No, how do we keep our ways pure? By keeping it according to God's word. Then he goes on. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. Your word have I treasured in my heart. Oh, that's great. The psalm writer has treasured God's word in their heart. Why? To win maybe some of Juana's badges or to just have lots of facts. No. Why has the psalmist treasured God's word in his heart? Let it take deep root. Let it sit in the core of who he is so that I may not sin against you. Why study theology? What value does it have? We study God's word to know God's word. And as we treasure it, it keeps us from sin because we say, no, here's who God is and his ways are better. My heart tells me this, but God's word, the immovable foundation of my faith says this. Our hearts change, our hearts are wicked, our hearts are deceptive, but God's word is clear. And the more we know it, the more we will live it. And the more we live it, the more we're going to desire it because we see the life-giving power that it offers. Now, jumping ahead in Psalm 119, we're going to go to verses 25 and 27 now. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. I am, I am dead. I am weak. I am frail. But bring me back to life. Give me strength. Give me hope. How? Not by positive thinking. By God's word. And he goes on. I have recounted my ways and you have answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. So I will muse on your wondrous deeds. Again, help me to know what your word says so that I can know you better. There is a motivation. There is an intentionality behind why we study theology. And it's not so that we can learn what boxes to tick. And it's not so that we can be real smart. It's so we can live for our God because we love our God. And then jumping even further ahead in Psalms. 119. We're going to look at verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word gives guidance. God's word gives direction. God's word is truth. It is revealing to us. It creates a worldview. It gives us a lens by which to understand everything that happens to us, everything that happens around us, and everything that we desire. It helps us to know why is this right? Why is this wrong? Why should I do this? Why should I not do this? God's word guides our path. And again, think of the context. They didn't have a whole lot of ambient light right from, you know, the nearby city lights or whatever. They didn't have street lights where it was kind of hard to see. But if you have your phone flashlight, it's a lot easier to see for them. Nighttime was pitch darkness, complete loss, no sense of direction, no understanding of where you're stepping, no clue where hazards are unless you have a lamp. And for the Christian, that lamp, that truth is God's word. We study it so that we can know the way forward. Now, let's check out Isaiah. Now, we already read chapter one about how God was 
basically disgusted with Israel's sacrifices and all their law keeping because they had the wrong heart behind it. So let's check later in the book, though, in chapter 29, verses 13 to 14. Then the Lord said, because this people draws near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from me and their fear of me is in the command of men learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish and the discernment of their discerning men will be hidden. Theology is not about head knowledge. If there is no heart change behind it, it doesn't matter how much you know. You know, that's kind of the danger that I know a lot of people are afraid of when it comes to uh, biblical academia, right? You know, the, the deep study of theology is that a lot of it becomes very just academic, very fact-based. And a lot of people can study, study theology, theology, air quotes all over the place in these statements. People can study theology just in the same way that they would study ancient Greek culture, right? Or, or um, Akkadian mythology and things like that. Like people can get into studying Christianity and knowing all these intricacies and having all these, you know, really cool facts and things, and they can even argue you into the ground. But where's the value in that? God says that he is not impressed just because people know stuff. He's not impressed just because, you know, people are seen as discerning. They're seen as wise, that they have all these facts memorized by rote, right? By repetition, by just pure, cold, dead uh, intellectualism. Now, note, God is not saying there's a problem with wisdom. There's not a problem with discernment. There's not a problem with studying these things. God's problem is that they draw near with their mouth, but their hearts are far from him. That's the issue. Not that they were studying, but that their hearts were not the, the motivating factor in that study. And that is what God desires from us, from Christians for all time, for Israel in the Old Testament. Know him because you have a heart for him. Now, another prophet, Jeremiah, chapter 4, verse 22. For my people are ignorant fools. They know me not. They are simple-minded children, and they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they do not know. Again, what is God getting criticizing Israel for? You know, in the Isaiah one, he was kind of you know, casting down and, and speaking negatively of all these really smart fellas, right? All these, these, you know, sharpest, uh, uh, scissors in the drawer kind of guys. But God, again, his problem is not knowledge. In fact, in this, in this passage in Jeremiah, his problem is the lack of knowledge. It is the lack of understanding. He calls Israel ignorant fools. That's harsh, simple-minded children. Now, I know today, you know, oh, you know, kids have so much to teach us because we grew up on Disney movies and, and kids always, you know, come up and they tell their parents how they're wrong and things like that. But in, in biblical terms, being a child was not this good, redeemable thing. Children were dumb. Children swallowed rocks. Children stuck forks in whatever the equivalent of an electrical socket was back then. Right. Like children had to be molded and, 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 and invested in in order to teach them how to live as functional adults, because adulthood, 
back then and oh, I wish today is always the goal of parents. It's to create a functional, well-rounded adult who can love and serve Jesus Christ. And so when God's calling them children, like that is a deep insult. You know, God doesn't hate kids, but in the language and the context here and in the pure reality, if you have kids or have ever been around kids or have been a kid yourself and can be honest about how stupid you were, kids are not people who have good understanding of how the world works. They need to study. They need to be taught. They need to realize what the world really is, how things in the world work so that they can live. But Israel was not that way. God's criticism of them is not that they were too smart. It's that they didn't know anything. They were completely ignorant of the reality of God's truth and God's will and God's word. And because of that, they had been led into sin. They were wise to do evil. They were real good at doing evil. But they had no idea what God's will actually was because they had no desire to know more about him through his word or in that day through the prophets. All right. Now, as we uh, just kind of round up the Old Testament look at God's constant calling to know him and have a heart properly oriented towards him as you're getting to know him, we're going to look at some passages in Hosea. So Hosea 4 chapter 1 says, Listen to the word of Yahweh, O sons of Israel. For Yahweh has a contention against the inhabitants of the land. Uh-oh. Because there is no truth or loving kindness or knowledge of God in the land. Look how interestingly those things are kind of interconnected. There is no truth. There is no so, so there's no basic understanding of the reality of the world. There is no loving kindness, right? There is no, you know, horizontally, their relationships with each other were horrendous. There was no kindness. There was no love with one another. There was constant strife and division and contention and things like that. And there was no knowledge of God in the land. Their horizontal relationship was also screwed up. Now, taken on its own, we could say, oh, well, it's important to be as loving as it is to, to be you know, theological and things like that. But no, when taken with everything that God's word says, with everything that God calls Israel to throughout the Old Testament, as we've seen, what do we think the core issue with Israel here was? They did not know God. They did not know the truth. And therefore, their relationships with one another were completely jacked up because why not? You know, if we are not seeking to know God so that we can do God's will and please him, why not live for ourselves? Why not be selfish? Why not be like the people in James chapter four, right? Who were in love with the world and just living out their own desires. And therefore there was, there was strife, right? There was divisions among those people, just like there was divisions among the people in Hosea's day. And then Hosea goes on. So five verses later, Hosea chapter four, verse six, my people are destroyed. Uh oh, that's, that's pretty bad, right? His people are torn apart. They are shredded. They are decimated. Why? For lack of knowledge, because you have rejected my knowledge. I will also reject you from ministering as my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I myself will also forget your children. 
So here, God is getting after disobedient priests specifically, right? People whose basic job, right? They had been set aside. Their whole life was focused on studying and knowing the will of God and knowing who God is, what he says in his word, so that he can teach the people or so that the priests, they could teach the people. But they didn't. The people were suffering because they were not being taught God's word. Now, you might say, oh, well, then it's just for priests, right? Well, no, think about what they had. Not everyone had a, a Bible in their pocket. People didn't have phones where they could just, you know, get out the Bible app and look at whatever translation they wanted. Whatever word of God there was, was basically kept sacredly with the priests. It was their job to study it so that they could then be the conduit to the people so that they could study it themselves. So today, you know, we're in a different context where we have God's word for ourselves that we can study for ourselves. We don't have to go to a priest for it anymore. We have clear and easy access to it. And so therefore, ultimately, because we are all priests of, of Jesus Christ, we then need to study God's word for ourselves as well. And then final passage that we're going to look at in the Old Testament, Hosea 6, chapter 6. For I delight in, the, in loving kindness rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So we started this episode off with Isaiah, right? That, that God was sick and tired of the incense, of the prayers, of people entering into his courts, of the sacrifices. God was done with all of it. And God is still done with all of it, right? As we end with this passage in Hosea, God says that he cares more about people being loving to one another, but that's not all he cares about, right? Because our best intentions, you know, being nice people is not going to give forgiveness to Israelites. It's also not going to give forgiveness to us today. Because that loving kindness needs to come from a motivation. And that motivation is in the knowledge of God and understanding who God is so that as we are interacting with people, we are treating them as image bearers of God, of people who have inherent value, of people who are in either desperate need of the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ or if they have it, in desperate need of our love and forgiveness and patience because they are just as wicked and sinful as we are and just as equally saved by grace as we are. But the knowledge and understanding of God must be central to all of this. And it has to be motivated, as we've seen, not by just knowledge so we can do all the right things or know all the right facts. It's not just about having good intentions without a focus on God. All of these things need to work together. We need to desire to know and love God. Use the means that we have to do so that God has given us, which is primarily through his word, and then go out and do what we now understand is true and live for God truly because we truly love God. So that's the Old Testament. And I, I hope it's clear there's, there's a lot there. I tried to go through it quickly, but there is so much more we could look at. God is consistent in every part of his character. But for sake of this episode, God is consistent with the reality that he wants us to study and know him. And he wants our hearts to be the motivating factor that pushes us to do so. Or to study and know him with the intention to love and know him more so that we can live for him, which will include going back to his word to study and know him more. It's inescapable. 
we, we cannot deny the reality that God desires for us to study theology, or at least if we're, if we're going to be his, you know, uh, exegetical in this, right. If we're going to, to be fair and, and honest in what we've read, he at least wanted Israel to do that stuff. Now we are not Israel. Now my, all millennial brothers and sisters out there are about to hit the pause button. Just calm down. It's okay. You can pretend we're Israel if you want. It, God doesn't just call Israel to study him. That same call, that same God who wanted his people then to know him through his word is the exact same God who desires us to know him in the exact same way today. And so let's go and look at that. So we're going to start off in Matthew chapter four, verse four, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God context here, Jesus is speaking. He is speaking to Satan. Satan is uh, bringing kind of that temptation in the wilderness to him. And Jesus is just quoting scripture at him. And what's fascinating about this is that remember again, what Bible did Jesus had when Jesus said that we live on uh, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? What is he talking about? At that time, only what we now call the New Testament. That is what Jesus and Paul and all these guys had access to. Now, as time went on in the church, you know, there were the uh, letters that, that Paul and Peter and those guys wrote that were being circulated. But primarily, when the Bible talks about the word of God, the writers have in mind the Old Testament. And isn't that fascinating that Jesus doesn't dismiss the value of the Old Testament? He says that it is life-giving, just as life-giving as the Psalms say that the, it is. But he says here again, that we live by the word of God, even Jesus, who is God basically said, we live by studying theology. We live by studying and understanding God so that we can live for him. Now going on Matthew 20, uh, chapter seven, verses 24 to 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them again, knowledge plus action may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended and the rivers came and the winds blew and fell against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. So what's Jesus saying here that everyone who hears the words of Jesus and does them right. Whoever knows the savior listens to the savior and obeys the savior. They are building their life, their foundation, their worldview on a rock that cannot be shaken. And then he goes on in verse 26 and everyone hearing these words of mine and not doing them may be compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. So some assumptions that Jesus is making here, one that we are listening to God's words, right? We are exposing ourselves to God's word on more than just Sunday mornings. And honestly, probably we should do it more than just a single Bible verse of the day, right? We are immersing ourselves in God's word to the degree that we can then do them. And in doing them, it will be so ingrained. It will be so saturating in our lives because of the time that we have spent trying to understand and study and know God that when 
things in life come, right? Because life's not easy, especially for the follower of Christ. When those things come, we will not be shaken. Our bodies may be destroyed. Our lives from a worldly perspective may be unpleasant, may be miserable. But what matters is that we are building our faith, our truth, our worldview on the truth of Jesus Christ by knowing it and desiring to live it out and saturating ourselves with it. That can be what Jesus says of us. That can be the experience we have in this world that is constantly trying to shake our house and tear us down. Now we go on in Luke 24 verses 25 and to 27. And then we're going to jump over to verse 32. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So here, this is after Jesus has been uh, killed for our sins, right? Paid the penalty that we could never pay, suffered under the wrath of God for us, died, was buried, rose again victorious three days later. And then he had been with some of his followers. And then what does he say here? It says, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets. So busting out his Old Testament, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He interpreted. He showed them, here's what it says. Also, here's what it means and why it matters. Jesus taught theology. That's what's going on here. Jesus is teaching theology. He is helping them understand, here's what the Bible says, here is what it means, and here's why it matters so that it can impact your life. Specifically, how Jesus was the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecy that God had been promising all the way from Genesis chapter 3. Now then, in uh, this Luke 24, uh, verse 32, this is a little bit afterwards, it says, And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? Again, Jesus taught theology. He taught them to understand God's word. If they were benefited by Jesus teaching them, why would we not desire to be benefited by learning them as well, by being uh, illuminated through the Holy Spirit, but also being taught by godly men and women who have likewise been taught by the Holy Spirit, right? Had the truth revealed to them and had that truth clarified and understood by more godly men and women, right? We, we today, and as I record this 2023, we are the inheritors of a vast wealth of knowledge and understanding. The Bible is our, our only true source of truth, right? Everything that it says in its original writings is perfect and infallible, but in understanding it and working through the difficult things and digging through just the basic foundations of the faith, it's not just, oh, well, it's just me and the Holy Spirit and alone in my room and whatever I think that is true. I'm just going to say that God taught me that. We have centuries of men and women who lived and even died to study God's word, to help us understand the basics so that we can then build on what they created so that we can stand on the shoulders of those giants and keep learning and growing today. So, you know, this focus here, yes, obviously is on God's word and why we must study it, but never discount the reality 
that your brothers and sisters today and throughout history, true followers of Jesus Christ, had the exact same Holy Spirit in them who you have inside of you. And what he taught them must be in alignment with what he teaches us. If not, then one of us is wrong or both of us are wrong. Right. But this is why there is value in understanding what other Christians have learned and understood, how we grow and learn from one another, how we allow them to use their strengths and their understanding and what God has worked in their life to help us then understand his word as well as we continue growing for ourselves. Right. We don't just sit and say, well, I am a follower of of this pastor or this preacher or this historian or whatever. Right. We are followers of Christ benefited by other followers of Jesus Christ as we study theology. Now, going on, Luke 24, 44 to 45. Now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Again, Jesus teaching theology. Now let's, uh, Go past the Gospels a little bit and get into Acts. So this is when the early church is starting, right? Uh, people were saved at Pentecost, and then uh, they spread back out to their hometowns. And uh, you know, men like uh, the apostles, they went out and they started uh, planting churches, if you will. And here we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Uh, it says, so this, the context here is this is after Paul had been chased out of uh, the church in Thessalonica because the Jews were very threatened by what Paul was bringing and upsetting their, you know, nice, comfortable Jewish lives. And so uh, here we get a really cool contrast of they had just been chased out by people who had God's word and understood God's word, but they did not want to understand it to know the truth. They wanted to understand it so they could have their boxes checked and things like that. Now look at the comparison though, that he makes in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Now these in Berea were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica for they received the word with great eagerness. And look at this examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed along with not a few prominent Greek women and men. Lots of cool stuff to unpack here, but look at what happened. Paul went, gave them the gospel, told them, you know, here, here's what's up. And it says that they were more noble minded, right? They were, you know, Paul could speak highly of them because they examined, they studied the scriptures daily. Why? Because they wanted to know the truth. They wanted to see whether these things that Paul was saying were true. And then what was the outcome? What was the result? Many of them believed. So people say, oh, you know, theology never saved anybody and all that. Well, theology is studying the truth. And in what world does knowing the truth not save people? Now, we don't argue people into salvation, but the reality is that they have to, we, we need to know enough of the truth to explain God's truth to them so that they can understand who they are as sinners before a holy God, who Jesus Christ is as God become flesh, dwelling among us, living a perfect life, dying on the cross to pay for their sins so that by placing their faith and trust in who he is and what he did, they could receive the forgiveness that Jesus purchased on the cross. 
that's what we learn through theology. It's not about our beliefs, our, our opinions. It's not about what we feel is right. It's about here's what God's word truly says. And by examining it frequently, daily, these people were able to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation because they saw what the truth of God's word was, not because what some guy told them was true, because of what God's word clearly revealed. What about Romans 15, 4? For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So again, the value of the Old Testament was to instruct us to understand the truths of God, to give us hope in life, to change how we live, how we think, how we approach everything, right? God's word shapes our worldview, but it only does that if we know it. Next, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. Really quick grammar lesson here. So notice the ing statements in this in this verse: teaching, admonishing, singing. These are things that are stemming from something, right? By by having something in place, the teaching and admonishing and singing are possible. And what has to be in place? The word of Christ dwelling richly in us. When God's word dwells in us, when it is a part of us, when we have studied it and allowed it to start changing us, right? After salvation, allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work inside of us, we are able to, with wisdom, teach one another, right? Godly wisdom, not just being, you know, wise in our own eyes, wise according to worldly wisdom, but through godly wisdom, grown, developed, refined, and in alignment with God's word by having that wisdom, we are able to teach one another. We're able to admonish, right? To correct one another, to encourage one another, to build one another up. And we're able to sing with gratefulness in our hearts to God. In other words, we're able to bring encouragement. We're able to celebrate. We're able to have joy. But all of this stems from knowing God's word. Then we continue on in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also is at work in you who believe. So again, the word of God, it's at work. The word of God is not this, this dry stationary thing that is just, you know, like Shakespeare or Plato or, you know, some, some old, old writing. God's word is, well, what do you know? Living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It does stuff. And as we're seeing, the stuff that it does isn't just give us words of wisdom to live by, doesn't help us be better people. It helps us know our God so we can live for our God, so that we can be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in knowing the truth and seeing the truth and in seeing how, you know, here's, here's what we are. Here's what we need to be like. God's word allows us to live the way that God desires for us to live. And then we're going to look at some stuff uh, that Paul wrote to Timothy 
So in 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. So, again, remember, context of this is real, real, real important. Why did they need to, to publicly read Scripture? Well, one, because it's valuable, right? It's all of us hearing God's Word together. But for most cities, this would have been their equivalent of reading their Bible every day. Because not everyone had, you know, a personal copy of the Old Testament that they could just carry around. You know, books were expensive back then. Most likely, a lot of them had to actually maybe borrow the, the books of the law and stuff from the local Jewish synagogue, if they were friendly enough to allow them, right? So, so the kind of, I think, uh, deeper context here isn't just here's what you should do at church, but instead... People need to be regularly exposed to God's word. And in that, in the context of the church, exhortation and teaching, again, we see that God's word should be the, the primary factor in any sermon that you hear. It should be central to all aspects of church life. A sermon's not about, you know, funny stories or motivating speeches or deeply emotional connections and things like that. It is God's word that teaches, it's God's word that corrects, it's God's word that builds up. Now, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So what things did Timothy hear from Paul in the presence of many witnesses? What we see in things like Acts and, and things like that, the things that the Bereans were checking their own version or their own copy of the Bible for. Paul would teach things and say, here's what God's word reveals. He would proclaim it. And he is telling Timothy those things, right? The truths of God's word that I taught to you, teach that to other men so that they can go and teach others also, right? It's that that's the discipleship process. But Paul isn't saying, hey, go plant more churches. Hey, you know, build, build a, a following on Twitter and things like that. He's saying, you heard me teach the Bible. Now you teach the Bible to others so that they can go and teach the Bible to others. God's word is, once again, central, core, essential, inescapable, absolutely necessary for Timothy in his personal life, as well as how the church functioned. And going on in 2 Timothy 2, now verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So I'm going to ask you an honest question. And if you're in a position to do so, I would honestly encourage you to pause and really ask yourself, are you someone who should be ashamed of how you handle God's word? Do you handle it poorly? Do you not handle it at all? Do you not care enough about it? Do you abuse it? Do you use it for your own means? Do you just use it to, to, to beat your kids into submission by throwing Bible verses at them? Do you use it to justify living how you want to live and saying, oh, well, see, if you kind of squint and wink and turn your head a certain way, I can make this Bible verse say this. Is God's word secondary to other truth in your life? Do you listen more to the opinions and thoughts of others? Do you go to books to understand how to do things like church or parent or understand your marriage? 
before you go to God's word and understand what has God revealed. Paul tells Timothy to study, to be diligent, to be intentional, to be hardworking, to show himself as someone who doesn't need to be ashamed, as someone who can accurately and rightly and correctly and faithfully and regularly handle God's word. Is that you? Or are you ashamed right now? Will you be ashamed when you stand before your God? You know, I've heard uh, Paul Washer say this frequently, and I'm sure he got it from someone else. But he says, the best time to plant an apple tree was 20 years ago. The second best time to plant an apple tree is today. It's so easy to look at all the ways that you failed, all the time you've wasted. Trust me, I get it. I, I was saved at 18. I wasted 10 years of my life just kind of living for myself, not understanding how to study God's word and things like that. I've only been studying God's word. I've only been living out the truths of 2 Timothy 2.15 for about a decade now. But I want to study to show myself approved. I want to be like Ezra who studies God's word so that I can practice it, so that I can live it out, so that it can be an active part of my life. And by the grace and mercy of God, I get to have this ministry of Onward in the Faith where I am, I am encouraging, I am, I am building into you, and I am even pleading with you to study God's word for yourself as well. It is matters so much. Not because I say it does, not because my personal history and experiences tell me that it's valuable, but as we're seeing, God says that it's valuable. God says that it's necessary. And if God says that it's necessary, it's necessary. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how different you think you are. If you have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, because you understood what God's word said about your sin and your need for a savior, then God's word matters just as much for those everyday moments in your life as well. This is of critical importance to you. Please do not overlook what we're talking about in this episode, what you're hearing, what you're doing with your free time and things like that. Make your time matter by understanding who your God is. Handle his word well so that you can live for him and Make disciples, right? Invest in others who can teach others also and keep this love of God's word flowing across our relationships and flowing down through the generations. Now, 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17. And that from childhood, you have known the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. So two major observations here is that Paul is commending that Timothy knew the sacred writings, again, the Old Testament, from childhood, right? Someone, his, his uh, grandmother taught him. And in that, he, he understood the reality of where his salvation would be found. And then Paul clarifies that all scripture, and today we can say that the New Testament writings, right, the epistles, the writings of the apostles, they 
are God-breathed, and they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. They equip us to serve God. So the Paul's letters to Timothy were written from essentially one pastor to another pastor. And then when Paul wrote to Titus, it's the same situation. It's one pastor writing to another pastor. And in Titus 2.1, it says, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. So in other words, he's telling Titus, hey, say things, but only those things that are in alignment with proper teaching, with what is true. How do we know what's true? God's word. So in other words, he is telling a pastor, hey, only say things that are biblically accurate, that are backed and supported by God's word and that come from God's word. Now, like I said, these are written to pastors. And so it's very tempting to say, man, that's a, that's a lot of focus that God is giving to pastors. You know, my pastor really needs to read his Bible a lot. My pastor really needs to study theology. My pastor needs to do all this stuff. Now, obviously that falls apart when we look at everything else we've looked at, but for those who are still hung up and think, well, you know, theology is just for pastors. It's just for those people who are called to study theology. Let me ask you, what is the point of your pastor? What is his job? The Bible gives him a few basic qualifications, right? He's supposed to protect the flock from false teachers. He is supposed to uh, love and care for you. You know, he's supposed to, to preach the word. But he also has a very specific job for how he interacts with you. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 15. And he himself gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So he gave these different types of people, right? He gave pastor teachers, he gave evangelists and, and prophets and apostles. Why did he give these? Why did God give you the pastor that he gave you? God tells us for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the full knowledge of the son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So, you have a pastor. Yeah, your pastor needs to study theology, but he also needs to teach you to study theology. He needs to equip you to understand how to read your Bible. His job is not to tell you what to think. His job is to equip you to do the work that God has for you, to do the work of service in serving God in your life, in whatever way God has called you to, in your job, in your home, in your friend groups, wherever you are, whatever ha God has for you, God gave you your pastor to equip you, to invest in you, to build you up so that you can understand good theology and go live it out in those areas of your life that you are in. Your pastor is not there to be a funny guy. He's not there to be a showboat. He's not there to entertain you. He's not there to be the, the answer book or the, I guess, to be your personal Google your pastor is valuable to your life. You know, your pastor should be the one that you can trust to protect you and to, and to watch over you and to understand what truth is. But his job is not to be the sole holder of truth and the sole studier of theology. 
you need to be doing it too. Your pastor is just there to equip you to do it well. So all this that we're talking about, it's not just for pastors. It starts with pastors often, but you need to not be a burden on your pastor by remaining as a baby Christian who cannot handle the truths of God because he has to keep going around bottle feeding you. It's okay if that's where you are now, but don't be content to stay there forever. Use the man that God has given you in your life to grow you into maturity, into the stature, into being more like Jesus so that you can read your Bible and understand it so that you can teach others also so that you can do the work that God has called for you to do in understanding who he is and therefore living for him. And the benefit to this so that uh, so continuing on in Ephesians 4, 11 to 15, verse 14, so that we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. That is Christ. Again, This is how we know that theology isn't just for your pastor. Your pastor is to equip you, to grow you into spiritual maturity so that we, so that all of us, all of Christ's followers aren't so weak and unknowing in the truth that we can just be swayed by every doctrine that sounds good so that we can be pulled around by all the false teachers around us. Your pastor studies theology to equip you to understand how to study theology for yourself so that you and him and those around you, those who are weak and those who are strong, can be protected from all the false doctrine, all the the pulls of our hearts and things like that, all of the cultural influences that make us want to compromise God's truth. We are all meant to study theology. Some are going to do it better. Some are going to do it longer. Some are going to be better equipped in some areas than others. But as we are all growing and being grown into maturity, we will strengthen one another that much more when we are taking responsibility for knowing our God for ourselves. Now, we talked about James at the beginning. We'll look at James again briefly. James chapter 1, verses 22 to 24. But become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately forgot what kind of person he was. So God's word reveals the truth of who we are, of what we're doing, of what we must stop and what we must start. But those who just read the word, who are exposed to it, but then don't go out and do something about it, who don't let their lives be changed by it are just as lost as when they started. There is no long-term point in reading God's word if you're not going to do something about it. That's not to say that every time we read God's word, you know, he just needs to smack us in the middle of the head and we have these these life-changing experiences. But if we are not going to God's word with the desire to let it change us, then our actions might be good, but our hearts, our intentions are screwed up. Our actions matter. James makes it very clear. What we do matters, but why we do it is critical for those actions meaning anything, for having any value in our lives as we devote ourselves to Jesus Christ. 
Now, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, so they studied theology, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So the Old Testament prophets, they studied theology. They they heard the words of God. They were given the words of God to be spoken. But then they wanted to know what it all meant. They wanted to know when this promised Messiah was coming. They studied theology to say, hey, are we going to get to participate in this? Are we going to be around when the Messiah finally comes? And then 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 25 to chapter 2, verse 3. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was proclaimed to you as good news. So the, the word of the Lord, right? Old Testament, New Testament, what God says matters forever. God's word is constantly valuable. And it is this very word that holds the gospel. So again, I said, you know, we, we think that, oh, you know, the gospel and, and things like that are really important to us when we get saved. But then after that, you know, we got our get out of hell free card and we just kind of go and do our thing. But no, God's word has value on the day of salvation. It has value 50 years after your day of salvation. God's word endures forever. It matters just as much to us today as it did on the day when we realized our guilt before that holy God that we now get to serve as his children instead of living as his condemned enemies. And then Peter goes on and says, Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. In other words, if you truly are a Christian, you need to desire God's word. You need to want to understand God's truth in the same way that a hungry baby shrieks and begs and reaches for its mother when it's hungry, right? We need to have that, that emphasis, that desire, that passion to know that I am starving. I am wasting away. I am nothing. God's word has absolutely everything that I need. Now, a lot of us may not be that way. And we may have times where we're, we're like that sometimes, but maybe other times we hit those lows. Again, don't use your desire for theology, your desire to study, your desire to read the Bible as your gauge for whether you're saved or not. Use it as, as warning signs. You know, maybe there is something wrong. But we, we are not going to just love God's word without seeing why we need to love God's word. Let's say that a baby was born and they had to immediately get put on a bottle because, you know, their mother, uh, something happened, their mother couldn't feed them right away. And so they got put on, you know, a formula bottle, which is good for what science is able to make it, but it's not the same as mother's breast milk. Now, let's say that that baby then, in a couple weeks, is finally introduced to its mother and its mother tries to feed it. And that baby is hungry. Is that baby going to see the value of its mother compared to the value it sees in the bottle? No. Why? Because that baby, even that small, even that unknowing, knows how to associate my hunger needs with this bottle that I can see or, you know, how the bottle feels in its mouth or whatever it is. God's word is the same way. You cannot expect 
to love God's word. You cannot expect to hunger for God's word if you don't see why it's valuable. That's just the reality of it. Why would you long for something that you don't need or see, see value in in your life? I mean, that's, that's really what this, this episode, I hope, has also been kind of side hinting at. Yes, God says to desire these things, to long for these things. But we want to long for them because we see the value of God's word. We see how it isn't just like a really good idea for our lives, but that it is central to our lives. It is essential. We would die without God's word. When we think about God's word that way, when we really believe that that's true, then that's going to impact what we're doing in our lives, right? Go back to the beginning of the episode. Stated beliefs plus actual practice equals actual beliefs. So if we say we love God's word, but we're not reading it, that should be a sign. Not that we are unsaved, not that we are, oh, woe is me, a horrible person. I mean, yes, we're all horrible people. Praise God that he sent his son to die for us. But instead, look at that and say, I want it to be true that I love God's word. The fact that I'm not treasuring it, that I'm not reading it, is telling me that what I am truly believing about God's word is flawed. And that gives us something to act on. That gives us a direction to go. I believe God, you know, if you say, I believe God's word and what it says and why I needed salvation and what Jesus did and who I am before a holy God, but now you're not as hungry for it, then, then realize really step one is I need to see and understand why God's word is valuable for my life. And maybe it's like what James says, that if you lack wisdom, if you lack the wisdom to know why God's word is valuable in this case, ask God, pray to God. Beg God. Don't just say, you know, one and done, you know, submit your warranty claim. Dear God, I would like to love the Bible more. Sincerely, Ray Burns. And then just ship it off and just kind of, you know, wait for some kind of response. Be persistent in going to God. Invite others into your begging God for the wisdom to love his word. Find people that you can trust. Find people who will help you understand Develop a true belief that God's word is essential for your life so that you will read God's word more, so that you'll be able to look at your life and say, yes, what I say matches my actions and what I'm doing. I love God's word. I can high five the psalmist all day long about how God's word is truth. God's word is a light. Long for it like a baby longs for the milk of its mother. And if you're not, Learn why your true life, your true purpose, your true satisfaction is going to be found in the God who has revealed himself through that word. Now, the last thing I want to look at is Revelation chapter one, verse three. We started in Genesis. We made it all the way to Revelation. Good job, us. So Revelation chapter one, verse three. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it for the time is near. Now, I don't want to go beyond what is actually being said here by John. He is specifically saying, blessed is he who reads the book of Revelation and who hears the words of the prophecy of the book of Revelation and keeps the things which are written in the book of Revelation. But 
I think that we can safely apply the principle that John is talking about here to all of God's word, right? The book of Revelation is hugely valuable. It has a lot in it that warns us. It has so much in it that gives us hope for what is coming. But all of God's word, we can say the same about blessed is anyone. Blessed are you. If you read God's word, blessed are you when you hear God's word, blessed are you when you keep the things written in God's word. Again, John was talking about just this specific prophecy that he wrote, but from Genesis to revelation, we see over and over the same consistent drumbeat. Read God's word, obey God's word. Love God, and because you love God, desire to read his word so you can obey God's word. Blessed is he who reads God's word, and blessed is he who keeps what God's word says. Should Christians study theology? Does God want you to study theology? I know this was a long episode. Kudos to those of you who made it to the end of this. The whole reason I did this, this episode in this way is I don't want you to do what I say because I am convincing, because I'm clever with my wordplay, because I'm a real likable guy. I want you to see that in everything I do, I am a river to you. I want you to see clearly what God's word says. In this episode, you know, I, I gave some commentary on what God is saying and things like that, but I hope that you have seen very little of me and so much of your God, his call, his encouragement for you to know him by knowing his word, by seeing the life-giving power of the Bible and studying it and knowing what it says and understanding how to interpret the easy things, how to interpret the hard things. And knowing that these little verses that we throw in our coffee cups usually are ripped out of context and rob that verse of what it's really saying. I hope that you have heard one thing over and over again because it's just come from God's word over and over again. God wants you to study theology. Not for smarts, not to check something off your list. God's not just interested in you having, you know, really good intentions. What is the essence of theology? Growing in truth so that we can live in truth. When we grow in our understanding of God, because he is the source of all truth, God's not some abstract thing, right? God is living, right? He is true. He is real. He is actual and he has given us the means to know him and the more that we grow in our knowledge the more that we grow in our understanding of him the more we can live for him but that motivation matters right that's what we talked about at the beginning reading god's word can always be valuable even to an unbeliever because they can see the truth of god but as followers of christ we want to start with saying i love god first and foremost i love god beyond all else. And because I love God, I want to know him beyond all else. How can I do that? He's given us his word. He is so good in giving us his word. We don't have to wonder if I've got it right or if Jimmy down the street's got it right. 
We don't have to say who is more convincing, who is more persuasive. We say who is accurate to God's word. The word that I have studied, the word that I have devoted my life to, not just this dry, dusty collection of words, but the words given and divinely inspired by the real God of the universe, the God who I get to call father, the God who sent his son to die in my place, the God who in saving me has given me the Holy Spirit, who lives inside of me, drawing me towards truth, helping me understand all this stuff that is impossible for the natural man to understand. That is why we study theology. That is why I do what I do. That is why I hope your pastor does what he does. That is, I hope, why you live your life, why you watch this episode, why you are going to read your Bible after this or read it in tomorrow or, or go on your 500-day Bible reading streak maybe 500 days from now. Don't just do it because you feel guilty for not doing it. Do it because you know that truth, life, hope, peace, conviction, freedom from doubt, freedom from guilt, freedom from addiction, freedom from anger, the ability to walk in peace despite all the world blowing up around you, the ability to understand the role that death plays in our lives, the ability to comfort those who need comfort, the ability to admonish and encourage your brothers and sisters, the ability to sing praise to our God. Everything that we do in this life, everything that we believe about how we vote, about how we behave in our job, about whether we take our job or pass by a job, about how we spend our money, about how we raise our kids, everything that we need to understand, to think about life is found in God's word. And if we want to live life, if we want to think like Jesus, we have to know who he is. We have to know the truth of God. I want you to study theology, but it doesn't matter what I want. It doesn't matter what I say. I hope it is clear, way beyond clear, that your God wants you to study theology. And if a good God wants it, if a good God wants you to read your Bible and know your Bible and devote your life to practicing that Bible, and even then going on and teaching those things you've learned to others, if a good God desires that for you, then you know it's a good thing for you. So read your Bible, study your Bible so that you can know the God that you love. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.